This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello you're listening to the times red box politics podcast coming to you for the last time for a little while from me patrick mcguire yes matt chorley's back on monday but in the meantime we had a great show for you today For our big thing at 11 o'clock, we spoke about the minor parties in British politics and debated whether this year might be the year they finally break through. Spoiler alert, probably not. But anyway, in the meantime, we spoke Prince Harry and much else besides with an all-star columnist panel. Today, it was Melanie Reid and Robert Colville. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Friday, so we've got Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Patrick. How are you? Happy New Year. And it's the 6th. Yeah, and to you too. It's the 6th, the 12th day of Christmas. I can still get away with saying that. And we've got Robert Colville from the Sunday Times too. Morning, Robert. Good morning. How are you, Robert? I'm 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 well. I'm quite annoyed though. I thought I'd got the politician, but I was five years out on the birthday, so I'll have to keep thinking. Oh, who was your guess? Tom Watson. Tom Watson. Can we get a no, no, no? No. No, no. No, it's not Tom Watson. It's not Tom Watson. Uh, alas. Uh, so that's two incorrect guesses. I wish someone had told me because we were really, uh, really struggling for uh, guesses for that last round. But anyway, Robert, uh, I'm very grateful. Uh, it's not Tom Watson, guys, uh, if, uh, if any of you at home were wondering who our mystery politician uh, was. Right, let's get, let's get straight into it, shall we? Uh, there's only one thing I'm afraid we're going to talk about this morning, but it's you know fascinating stuff, totally unprecedented stuff uh, from Prince Harry in his memoir spare uh, a family dispute melanie um do you have do you have more than i know you have a son who we often talk about and embarrass on this show have you just got the one son or have you got two sons oh one son but uh you know i i'm very aware how how little boys fight siblings fight cousins fight and you know doesn't every family have fallouts you know every family is unhappy in their own way and uh Siblings, brothers fight, brothers brawl, step-parents cause tension, young men lose their virginity and take drugs and do stupid things. And, and you know, but give or take a few billion quid, that's the kind of stuff that can appear on, on the Jeremy, used to appear on the Jeremy Kyle show. Uh, and, and that's what makes, for me, this, this makes it very sad and rather tacky that it's been put into the public arena in a way that, it doesn't have to be because we all recognise these things go on. But you know, does it really help if they turned it turned into a, a bit of a, a public circus? 
it's very sad. Robert, if uh, if one of your kids had written a memoir this salacious, this prurient, revealing uh, all the ins and outs of your family life or your family tensions, uh, I'm sure you wouldn't be best pleased, would you? I mean, I know your kids are very young, so I, I, I would, I'd, I'd be I, impressed I would be first and foremost. Because it would, it, 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 would, it would involve a quantum leap in literacy from a, <laughs> a seven-year-old and a four-year-old. <laughs> You know, at the, at, the, at the moment, then we have a sign on the kitchen saying, you know, this is the gingerbread factory. Get your gingerbread here, which is about the, the limit of their literary aspirations. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, look, uh, Prince Harry did have to hire a ghostwriter. That's what I uh, that's what I will say uh, about that one. Um, but, you know, Robert, if you were advising the palace, because, you know, we, we you know, we, we, we joke, but these are incredibly serious allegations. There are there are of constitutional import, right, because the monarchy in this country depends on sort of public consent or rather uh needs the public to be you know be happy to to acquiesce to its continued uh continued existence um and if it's at the heart of a controversy like that and there are questions about the personal conduct of the heir to the throne do you think it's difficult for buckingham palace and the prince of wales to maintain the vow of what they call dignified silence that they've kept so far or does this sort of warrant a response from prince william do you think I, I, I think they will maintain that, that vow of, of, of silence, and I think they'd be right to do so. Um, my, my view is that if, if this had come out earlier, um, you know, if this had been raised um, at, at, at some other stage in, in proceedings, I think there would have been um, more of a sort of, um, you know, it, it, would, it would have been more, more shocking. But we're at the stage now where Harry has been... I mean, the, 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 it, lots of people are sort of saying this is just a commercial thing. You know, Netflix have, and his publishers have bought his soul and he has to deliver the goods. I don't think that's it. I think I, I, the people who've read this, uh, this this book or the, the extracts from it, you know, seem to show, you know, he is he is in pain. He is lashing out. He is he he, he is anguished. But like what does you know but at, at this point everyone is everyone is in their, on their sides right it's um you know everyone is either team harry or or team william everyone you know everyone knows what they think about Meghan markle harry thinks she is an angel who walks on earth um quite a lot of people who worked with her don't seem to share that view and it's it's striking that he one of the things that comes through is he, he doesn't he anytime anyone criticizes Meghan, he, he assumes they can only be motivated by by press briefing as opposed to um anything she she, she may have done so you know i think the Everyone is—it's it, kind of almost like like American politics, actually. Um, uh, you know, everyone is so set in their ways. Everyone is so on one side or the other that I don't. That I think you know, quite a lot of people will just write this off as as the latest, you know, the latest. Um, uh, in, a, in a in a sort of prolonged prolonged campaign, you know, he's it, it, and it, that's what makes it sad. You know, he is he is how he is sort of sort of trying to make them come you know come to terms. He's trying to engage with them as if they were a normal family, but they're not a normal family. They're, they're the royal family, and there's things they can and can't say. And you know, the idea that they're going to sort of apologise and engage with him and go through a sort of Californian style psychotherapy process, I think, is is for the birds. Well, Robert, hold that thought uh, because we're going to talk about an even more divisive figure in public life. Uh, Liz Truss, who, if you read the Times this morning, you read a very good Times uh, column from Spectator political editor Katie Balls, uh, is plotting uh, perhaps the unlikeliest comeback we'll see in 2023. And Katie joins us on the line now. Morning, Katie. Morning. Um, Interesting story you've got in the Times this morning, plotting over Chinese, a Liz Truss think tank. Um, Obviously, there's no question of Liz Truss uh, being back in number 10 anytime soon. But as you say, the Trussites are mobilising. 
Yeah, I think the question here is not, uh, you know, when people talk about Boris Johnson and whether he'll make a comeback, I don't think anyone seriously does it in terms of Liz Truss as a return to leader, even leader of the opposition. But I think there is a question when it comes to the battle of ideas in the Tory party. This group, partly, I think mainly even because of the exceptional circumstances in which her premiership blew up, were pretty quiet ahead of Christmas. Um, But ultimately, they haven't changed their views in terms of free market policies in terms of the fact that the party needs to be radical. And I think we're going to start hearing more from them. First, Simon Clark, uh, who served in Liz Truss's cabinet, already has a group on this. But secondly, Liz Truss, I suspect, will make an intervention in the coming months. And therefore, what does that do in terms of all these MPs who back Liz Truss? Yes, some for their careers, but also some because actually they did think Rishi Sunak was too managerial and not bold enough in his agenda. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, um, as much as it's easy to say uh, Liz Truss was was routed, uh, humiliated, she uh, premiership ended after 49 days, the fact remains that um, she won uh, a handsome majority among MPs and among Tory members. Clearly, her ideas, sort of, you know, the, the low tax, low regulation, um, that sort of thing, uh, is popular in the Tory party. And if Rishi Sunak is going to leave a vacuum, if he's going to take the sort of semi-deliberate decision not to be uh, at the forefront of every debate, then there's a vacuum there waiting to be filled. And Liz Truss's ideas, as you write in the Times this morning, are, are pretty popular among her target audience on the Green benches. Exactly. And I think this is not saying Liz Truss is the perfect communicator for this message, to be very clear. But the point is, I think we saw it this week. Um, so Rishi Sunak wants to, uh, you know, focus on his five priorities and he wants to under-promise and over-deliver. Um, so he'd rather have low expectations and exceed them. But then there's a big row about childcare reform uh, because of uh, reports that Rishi Sunak will not be taking forward Liz Truss's plans when it came to quotas, um, a policy that wasn't even really formally announced. And I think that took number 10 aback to a degree that this had even become a thing. But it had the effect that not only did you have those who supported Liz Truss and the leadership saying, we should listen to this, you know, from Kit Malthouse to Simon Clark, you also had MPs on the other side of the party saying, well, I don't agree with Liz Truss's solution, but why don't we have an offer on childcare yet? So it just adds to pressure on Rishi Sunak. So Again, in this balancing act he has where he doesn't have too much authority, he needs to, I think, give enough to this side of the party to say that there is, you know, ambitions for growth that go beyond uh, what people expect to happen on growth pretty much anyway in the next year or so um, in in order to, to keep this tricky balance. Well, as you write, Katie, when a party trails by 20 points, can slow and steady be the answer? And that's the that's the question Liz Truss and her supporters are pondering and we're going to be hearing much more from them in the coming months. That was Katie Balls, political editor of The Spectator. She's got the lead column in this morning's Times. Uh, well worth the read. Just head to the Times website or pick up a copy of the paper. Uh, Robert Colville was listening to that. Robert what do you make of that? Katie's onto something, isn't she? In that, um, while there is no question, uh, no realistic question of a, a coup against Rishi Sunak, it's remarkable we're talking about in these terms, such as the regicidal impulses of the Tory party, even two months into uh, Rishi Sunak's premiership. There's no question of a change in leadership. But the policy debate is still very much live, isn't it? Do you think uh, the Trussites, as Katie puts them in this morning's paper, um, you know, are pushing against an open door to a certain extent? 
I think the the, the Tory the, the Tory Parliamentary Party is the most one of the most extraordinarily ungrateful uh, constituencies in in British politics. You know, um, just, just when when Sunak took over, basically the building was on fire, and the key job was to stop the you know to stop the markets plummeting and to and to stabilise the ship, which, which they've done. And now everyone is in a kind of like, well, that's great, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? Kind of. That kind of mood. So I do think. I mean, I do think there's something to it. Like people are not agitating about the leadership. What they are saying is, you know, they're seeing things like the childcare reforms or the cancellation of um, uh, quasi quoting's review of tax implication. Like the kind of the sort of not the sort of big headline kind of budget busting stuff that Trust was doing, but the sort of nerdy grinding supply side reform stuff that was meant to, uh, you know, deliver you know, lower bills to people and make the economy a more dynamic place. And they're saying, look, you know, this is still good stuff. How how come we're how come we're cancelling that? And as you said, the government's been taken aback. I, I, but I don't think yeah, I don't think this this, is, this isn't a sort of straightforward ideological debate. Like people like Sunak and Hunt and, and the rest, they you know they they share many of these views. They are they are free marketeers, but they are just they they are they are saying, well, look, we have to prioritise some other stuff, and that opens up space for debate in in the party. I mean, ha- housing would be another issue on, on this. You know that I've shouted about and written about in the Sunday Times again, again and again and again. That you know the 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 the, you know, the government decided it had to cave to the pressures from the back benches to to basically um you know lower cut house building in the southeast for the sake of those mp uh, mps in marginal seats and you know that was a there's a lot of people who are unhappy about that myself included and you've written at some length on those subjects in the sunday times of course robert as uh, followers of your irv will well know melanie what do you reckon surely a period of silence would be the thing most members <laughs> of the public would appreciate from liz truss they can't help themselves, can they? Uh, I mean, it's the the ideologues. You can't you can't keep a good ideologue down, and it's it's. Uh, I I find it extraordinary that at a time when, um, you know, they, they they've made such a mess of things, they're not even embarrassed about it. They they're still they're still um, you know agitating away. Um, they don't they don't see that uh, that that. They, that dull will win this race. That that they have to move to the centre. They have to keep, you know, very still and quiet and hope that managerialism wins them back some credibility. I I just I, it makes me laugh, you know, because I, I, I they're supposed to be very very intelligent people. You'd think they would just think, okay, let's get behind, let's get behind Sunak and make it happen. But they're incapable. They're incapable. Well, let's. Uh, that's quite enough, Liz. Trust for uh, for one yeah, morning. Let, let's uh, let's move back onto the question of uh, to the question of uh, of celebrity memoirs, which uh, you know, which are not always written by the people whose names are on the dust jacket. Prince Harry, no exception. Uh, his uh, his book was ghostwritten by J. M. Moringer. Uh, Melanie, you're writing about this for the uh, for the paper this weekend. Uh, you know yeah. from experience what a ghostwriter does. Yeah, I've, I mean, I believe Robert has too. We, 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 so, I mean, you, you've got a couple of, of, of ghostwriters here. You know, you know what it's like. You, we, we can tell you, but I mean, J.R. Moringa is is he, he came to my attention. I think it was two thousand and nine. He wrote a fantastic um, autobiography uh, for uh, Andre Gasset, the, the the tennis player, which was it was it was a terrific book, uh, a, a real of, of a confessional of a deeply unhappy childhood of of poverty and bullying and um of a, you know a very damaged sad childhood um and terrifically well written terrifically sensitive book and i um yeah i i've written about that in in it's online at the moment but it, it 
ghostwriting, as Robert will, I'm sure will 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 agree with me, is it sounds easy. It's incredibly difficult because you you have to put yourself. Uh, you are the you are the narrator. You have to put yourself into someone's voice, into their shoes, into their feelings, and it's you know it's a it's 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 a big ask. Sounds easy, but is incredibly difficult. Robert, would you agree? Yeah, I mean it's it's a fascinating thing. Thing I've I've done it. I mean mostly um, on, on articles, but also some some longer form uh, work. And it you, you know you're you're basically channeling the the, the the most successful ghostwriting is when people kind of read it back and think. Oh, why did I even need a ghostwriter? This is just my words. This is just what I think. Mm. It's it's it, it's trying to it's taking yourself completely out of the equation, sort of completely channeling the person you're you're talking to, and it's sort of you know you're you're setting out what they would write if they could write, or if they could write sort of you know well, well. if they had time to write, or if they had the the ability to write, or you know whatever it is, whatever the limitation is, which means that they can't or don't want to sit down sit down and do this yourself. And it's it's an incredibly intimate process because you are. You know, normally as a as a journalist, as a, as a as a columnist, you're kind of you're taking both sides. You're weighing up the evidence, but with this, you're not. You're ab- you're absolutely you know channeling the person you're talking to. You're 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 their voice, but also you then have to you then have to sort of re- retain just that little bit of distance and kind of push back and say, "Hang on, you so you've just told me this, but actually, wouldn't other people say this? And don't you don't you need to acknowledge that? It, it's it's just it's a fascinating balancing act. It is, isn't it? Sorry, go on, Melly. It, it's a tension between a professional writer, any professional writer. And an amateur, an, a, an amateur telling their story, and you have to be very invasive. And you, I mean, the the, the I I did I did a a, a memoir for for um, and the actor Gregor Fisher who had um, who had a sort of lost childhood. He was illegitimate, and then he had you know was adopted. He didn't he didn't know who he was, and and so I had to really try and and be his voice and in the end we we decided it, it wasn't possible and i had to step back from it and it was told in the third party um because it there are some things some places you almost can't go and um harry i think i think there is with with people with damaged childhoods um you know that the, there's all these reasons swilling around there's the, the need for money the need for for release for therapy for revenge for self aggrandizement in some cases and it it's very very complicated and uh, exhausting too what do you think robert does that does that ring uh, does that strike a chord with you yes i mean i, I haven't done anything on of, of that emo, emotional scale but it is it's it, it it's always it, it's always hard. i mean i, I haven't I haven't done it for a while because i because i've moved on but it you know it is you, you know <laughs> The, 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 I mean, it, it's a general thing about writing, actually. That the, the the advice I always give to people when I sit when I when they're learning to write or they're trying to write or you know they're putting together a column is just is read it out loud. If it sounds like a sentence, if it sounds like a sentence you would say, if it sounds like you, then it's a good sentence, and it doesn't really matter about about the rules. Just, you know, and that's that's kind of that's that's what ghostwriting ultimately is. You know, they they have to be able to read it read it out loud. It has to it has to be them, but it's all it's also you. And you know, and so much of what we write is it, like every kind of little instinctive choice we make is just is just us. It's just like what we I would automatically think if I've written this, then I need to follow it with with this kind of this thing. And it's trying to drag yourself away from that and make it sound like the person who's who, who's whose who's, who's voice you're channeling. It's, it is yeah. a really um, fascinating skill. You have to subsume yourself completely, um, and uh, that that is very hard. Um, do you know what's very interesting now is the rise in um, 
in autofiction, this this new thing, this blend of memoir and novel, where the author is the character, which is this kind of it, it, it's a, it's quite a big publishing thing now. I mean, it's winning Booker prizes, and and that fascinates me too. That people who you know that this telling of 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 grief and and, and emotion and memoir has become is is working in all sorts of different ways, be it through Prince Harry or be it uh, for literary fame. Well, we're, we're in an age when everyone believes they have a story to tell and that they, their story deserves mm. to be told. It's a, it's a boom time for, 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 you know, everyone has a trauma. Everyone has, has you know, when I used to review fiction books, every single one had a buried family secret at the core, which was revealed <laughs> 10, 10 pages before the end. That was Manly Reid and Robert Colville. Remember, you can read them in The Times and Sunday Times every week. Just pick up a copy of the paper from all good retailers or, alternatively, why not get a digital subscription? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze... Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yes, all this week while I've been sitting in for Matt, we've been reading the runes for Britain's political parties in 2023. We've covered the Tories, Labour, the Liberal Democrats. And today we're going to talk about some of the other parties hoping to break through in what's shaping up to be a very big electoral year. We're going to talk today about Reform UK, the Greens. And we'll, of course, talk about the Scottish National Party too before a whistle-stop tour of Wales and Northern Ireland. Joining us again is Tanya Abraham from the polling firm YouGov, and I'm also joined by Times political reporter Jerry Scott. Morning, Tanya. Have we got Tanya Abraham with us? Yes, I'm here, thank you. Morning, Tanya, <laughs> Morning. how are you doing? And, yeah, uh, good, and Jerry, how are you? Morning, Patrick, how are you? Great to have you. Great to have you. All the better for speaking to you two this morning. Um, We're going to talk about the electoral map and some of the specific challenges facing the parties in just a moment. But first, Tanya, let's discuss how difficult it is under 
the first-past-the-post system for the smaller parties, less established parties, uh, to break through, particularly when there's a they're polling in the low single digits? Yeah, absolutely. The national polling at the moment is showing that Reform UK are on around the kind of eight percentage uh, points in the polls. Greens are on around five percent. And if we put that into context with the other main parties, they're not too far behind the third place Lib Dems who are on around nine percent, but way behind um, the two main parties, Labour on around 48 percent and Conservatives at 24 percent. So you can see that the wide gap between the smaller parties um, is is, is there it has been um and yeah we'll see what happens in the next few months when it comes up to uh, the local elections as well and jerry it's incredibly difficult obviously politics as they say is show business for ugly people and um obviously parties live and die on the amount of media attention uh, they get and you know you're a lobby reporter uh, you're in parliament every day it's incredibly tricky for uh, mps from smaller parties indeed parties who don't have any MPs at all to get the attention of journalists and get the media coverage uh, they would otherwise need to prosper because uh, the onus is on journalists to, to cover to cover the government and cover the opposition. And there's not a lot of uh, time and space on telly, in the newspapers, on the radio for them to, them to uh, thrive in the spotlight, is there? No, that's right. And as a, as an avid listener, I heard you talking about the Lib Dems on this, and that's a problem for them. And it's even a bigger problem for parties like the Greens or Reform, who I know we're going to talk about today. And it means that quite often they'll have to do pretty kind of big, flashy things. I think, you know, Reform especially and its predecessors in UKIP and the Brexit Party have always been very good at getting kind of control of the news agenda, um, especially on single single issues like Brexit, the Green Party have had some success as kind of climate change and net zero has come to the fore a bit more, but they they really do struggle with that. So, I mean, it, and it does mean that they tend to almost kind of, you know, fence themselves in and risk then becoming single issue parties, which, um, which kind of becomes a vicious cycle. Um, so it is really difficult for them. Um, and especially when, you know, you might get something land in your inbox, and you think, well, who kind of cares, really? <laughs> well, well, who does care about the Green Party, Tanya? They have one MP, some peers, hundreds of councillors, but they're still polling behind the Lib Dems and Reform UK at the minute, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think it's, like has just been said, it's it's a challenge and an issue for them because the majority think of them as just addressing one issue, and that is, of course, the environment. When it comes to other issues that we know the public think are important, such as the economy, um, health and immigration, you know, what do the public think about this? How do the public think um, the Greens will tackle them? And to be honest, it's it's not a, a great outlook for them, just because the environment seems to be seen as such a priority for the Green Party. The public find it difficult to see how they would tackle um, these other issues effectively. And these are the issues that people would find important to, to be addressed for them personally. Well, let's speak to Zach Polanski. He's deputy leader of the Green Party. Morning, Zach. Morning, thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. Zach, I think lots of listeners may not know who you are, but why is that? Extreme news, uh, extreme weather is in the news every day. Climate awareness is higher than ever. You know, these should be propitious times for the Green Party, yet voting intention polls show you're lagging behind Reform UK, the former Brexit party. Why isn't it that we're, all to- we're not talking about the Greens more often? Why isn't it that you're not capturing the public imagination? 
Well, first of all, it's great to introduce myself to your listeners. I was only elected a couple of months ago. Obviously, it's been a turbulent time in politics, though. In the short time I've been deputy leader, we've had uh, three prime ministers, two monarchs, and I think three or four chancellors. So it's been a pretty busy time. I think it's a really successful time for the Green Party, though, actually. We're coming off our most recent historic results at the local elections. We now have more councillors than UKIP ever had at their peak. And I do think broadcasters have things to answer here for, particularly the BBC, sorry to mention another broadcaster, but UKIP were never off the TV. They were constantly on programmes like Question Time. So I do accept that there's a challenge there for the Green Party to get ourselves on media more often. I think to do that, we need to have things that people want to hear and, you know, exciting new things. Now, the really good news for us is that I hear what you're saying about the environment being seen as a single issue, but actually I think increasingly the public are joining the dots. And what I mean by that is there's no environmental justice without social, racial and economic economic justice too. So if you look at the cost of living crisis, for instance, we know that if you insulate every home in Britain that needs it, the cheapest bill is the one you don't have to pay. And actually energy efficiency is hugely important when people are struggling with their energy bills. We also know that's really important for the climate. So in many ways, you can almost take any issue and you could call it a climate issue, but actually it'll have huge ramifications for people's wallets, for their health, for their well-being and their happiness. And I think one of the key parts of the Green Party is joining those dots together. But I think the public are already making that 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 movement and that journey. And we just need to make sure they do that with us. Let's talk about your election results for a moment. As you say, you had record record performance in in last year's locals. You are uh, in government in pockets of the country. Obviously, you're in partnership with the SNP in Holyrood. You have some green ministers there. You continue to run Brighton and Hove as a minority administration in England. Uh, You're leading coalitions running Lancaster and Stroud councils. But sort of what links all these English... Uh, English councils, English administrations, is that they are, broadly speaking, sort of uh, metropolitan, liberal areas, lots of students, lots of graduates. Do you not worry that you are a party with perhaps limited appeal? You appeal to, very greatly, to one section of the section of society, you know, uh, well-off graduates, but you don't perhaps have the sort of broad appeal that's needed to prosper. You know, you can complain about, one can complain about the electoral system, but ultimately it is what it is for the time being. And your election results perhaps suggest that you don't have that broad appeal that you need to thrive on the first past the post. Is that fair? Well, there's no secret that I would make the argument for proportional representation. We need a fairer system where every vote counts. However, even under the current system of first past the post, I think we're demonstrating that we can beat it and we have been winning. And actually, I think the data shows that too. In our last uh, set of elections, we won just as many seats from Conservative parties as Labour seats. So it's roughly 50-50. So I would say it's almost the opposite of your question, actually, that we're showing we have broad appeal everywhere we go. I think there's what's particularly interesting, though, is... On one hand, we can challenge this Conservative government because they've been particularly awful on particularly, I would say, the environment and the climate, but lots of other issues. But we have a Labour Party that I think frequently is abandoning old Labour values. So if you take uh, defending striking workers, for instance, we have been very happy to be out on the picket lines with workers. Now, we know it's not just performative politics. That's only part of it. You also need the policy there, too. So one of our flagship policies at the moment is a wealth tax. That's a one percent tax on the wealthiest one percent. This has come from the University of Greenwich and it shows it would raise about 75 billion pounds a year that you could then spend on making sure we're doing some of those vital things that Keir Starmer is shying away from. I think when he says he doesn't want to get his giant checkbook out, he's learning the wrong lessons from the Liz Truss government. 
borrowing to fund unfunded tax cuts is a bad use of money. But borrowing to make sure we're investing and particularly green investment is a fantastic use of money. And I think once again, the Green Party is the only party that is occupying that space that's saying we are willing to invest. We are willing to join these dots and we'll um, offer a bold radical vision where other parties have left the pitch. Well, Zap Polanski, Deputy Leader of the Green Party, thanks very much for joining us to make the case for the Greens uh, who are on the up in uh, numbers of councillors but not in the polls. Uh, They're lagging behind Reform UK, the party that grew out of Nigel Farage's Brexit party. Um, Some think it's just a vehicle waiting for Nigel Farage to take the helm again. Uh, Tanya Abraham from YouGov, you're still listening. Although they don't have much by way of representation, Reform UK, uh, they rebranded after the 2019 election, they're now level pegging with the Lib Dems. They're polling much higher than the uh, than the Greens, uh, level pegging with the Lib Dems. Um, and in this week's poll of voting intention from the Times, uh, 9% of 2019 Tory voters are saying they'll vote for Reform UK, which is pretty remarkable for a party that, uh, you know, who were little known a couple of years ago and have ditched one of the most successful brands in British politics. Yeah, what you're what you're saying is absolutely correct. There is a, a proportion of um, 2019 Conservative voters who <clears throat> say they would vote for Reform UK if there was an election tomorrow. And we have to kind of come back to those issues that people find important um, when. Uh, we think about immigration. This is one of the key issues that Reform UK have talked about um, in recent weeks and months. Um, and we also know that the public are, as a majority, kind of dissatisfied with how the government is handling immigration as an issue. So um, we need to kind of consider whether people or how how much people are upset with or unhappy with the government's performance um, on a whole when it comes to certain issues and how voting behaviour is impacted, whether it's um, voting for an alternative, a similar party with similar values or stance on an issue, or just because they don't want to vote for the alternatives of Labour or even Liberal Democrats. Well, Matt had recently had a Reform UK leader Richard Tice on the show. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. As I think uh, some of your listeners may be aware, we've had record levels of new memberships joining Just on Friday alone, we had 693 new members join after the news of the the legal net migration numbers from the ONS released on Thursday. So, yeah, we are uh, we represent what I think most people who voted for Brexit, uh, what they wanted, which was to take control of our laws, money and borders. And none of those things, regrettably, have been delivered and are being delivered by the Conservative Party. So why are you still only on 6% in the polls? Well, look, it depends which polls you listen. We, on uh, one a couple of weeks ago, Matt, we were on 9%. We were ahead of the Lib Dems, and it was interesting that nobody in the media wanted to sort of pick up. The, the, the trend is upwards. Uh, essentially, we are, as Reform UK, as a, as a new brand, we're only 22 months old. We're making progress. Uh, we're, we're consistently ahead of the Greens. We're, we're chomping at the Lib Dems. And I say, we're the party on the up. And I think, that, frankly, the Tories are the party that's on the way down. And, that was Richard Tice, the leader of Reform UK. Jerry Scott, um, Richard Tice gave a press conference yesterday. He said the party is going to stand candidates in every constituency in England, Scotland and Wales. What do you think success looks like for them? Because history shows that uh, parties of the radical right on the Tories' right flank, uh, UKIP and the Brexit party before them, struggle 
well, almost find it impossible to win parliamentary seats. But what Conservative MPs will worry about, and indeed some Labour MPs, is their uh, role as a spoiler on the ballot paper. Well, I'm shocked, I tell you, shocked to hear uh, Richard Tice say that he hasn't had any coverage of his um, polling results because uh, I wrote quite a detailed deep dive on it for The Times um, just a couple of weeks ago and spoke to Richard himself for it. Um, but that's by the by. Um, look, the, the, what what Tory MPs fear is really that Nigel Farage is going to come back and play a big part in reform in a big way and that that will squeeze them out, particularly in those... 2019 red wall seats um they're not too worried if if Farage himself doesn't make an appearance it seems um but they are otherwise and that's the impact that they could have um you know by standing in in candidates in all those seats um and it's really that small boats issue that we've just heard about that they're really pushing on um and I, I think you know what we saw previously um in in these red wall areas is people turning to reform because they were just sick of the whole um Westminster system or what, what was the Brexit party then wasn't it um so I think that's probably the fear but I do agree with you that the likelihood of actually getting any seats is is pretty slim um and then it comes back to what we were just talking about about do they trust party small parties do voters trust small parties to deal with other issues if we look back to the greens um you know their opposition to um nuclear power in the during cost of living crisis has put people off so has their policy of wanting to pull out of nato at the same time as we're seeing russian aggression in ukraine so i think it's very tricky for these parties to get much further than being a protest vote uh, and what's Nigel Farage saying? He's the, he's the key, isn't he, to reform UK's success or not in the eyes of nervous Tory MPs. What, what's he saying about the prospects of a comeback? He's not ruled it out. Um, he, re- in fact, refused to rule it out. He said that he's actively involved with raising money and finding candidates. He said life is much more fun doing what he's doing now, which is uh, uh, presenting television programmes. Um, but he did say, you never know, I'm not ruling it out completely. So, um, you know, he, he he won't say, will he, until until the moment that he's decided, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure you'll be asking him again soon, Jerry, and he'll be giving you a similar non-denial denial. <laughs> um, Tanya, just before we take a short break and head further afield, um, Brexit voters... Um, when you poll them, um, do they still do they still say Brexit is the thing that really matters to them? And without sort of Brexit at the core of its identity, as it was in the in the Brexit Party days, can Reform UK really capture the imagination of these voters? Well, I think uh, looking at issues as a whole, we know that um, Brexit is or was one of the kind of crucial issues for many voters, especially of this certain group. Um, I think immigration is is almost an issue that relates to uh, Brexit in terms of how it affects uh, people on a day to day basis, the economy aspect of it and so on. So it is still um, one of the issues, but perhaps not the top issue that we're seeing at the moment. So now we're going to take a whistle-stop tour of the rest of the UK to hear from our colleagues in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland about looming elections there and what the political landscape holds for the parties that don't ordinarily make headlines in Westminster. Let's start with Scotland then and the Times Scottish political editor, Kieran Andrews. 
Scotland's NHS is near breaking point. Living standards are dropping and Holyrood uh, has its most challenging budget since the advent of devolution. Nurses are poised to go on strike and a new round of pay negotiations for other parts of the public sector mean that there may yet be further industrial action throughout the year. While the SNP's flagship care service reforms are in doubt over a lack of detail on policy and indeed on the money to pay for them. And yet, independence is once again going to be the thing that overshadows almost all other policy areas in 2023 north of the border. The SNP will have a special conference in March to try and thrash out exactly what is meant by using the next general election as a de facto independence referendum. In essence, trying to use the votes for MPs to determine whether Scotland should or should not be part of the United Kingdom. The big story that will come out of that is whether Nicola Sturgeon enhances her reputation and authority over her party by rubber stamping her vision for that de facto referendum or whether indeed her authority is diminished as a grassroots revolt and push for something different. The Scottish Conservatives will try and get back on the front foot after a year of chaos in Downing Street overshadowed anything the party did north of the border and indeed backed its leader Douglas Ross into flip-flopping over the Boris Johnson's future as Prime Minister. The party slid into third place and will want to try and push Labour as hard as it can to become the main opposition once again in Scotland. Labour, meanwhile, will want to develop a narrative and indeed perhaps some policy if it wants to show that it may yet be a credible challenger uh, as a party of government come the next horrid election in 2026. It's a big year and there's a long way to go for all of the major parties. Yes, a big year. That was Kieran Andrews in Scotland. Uh, Tanya, the SNP plan to turn the next election into a de facto referendum on independence, as they would have it. It's going to be one of the biggest political stories of the next two years. But what do the numbers say? Talk us through the polling on independence and the SNP's sort of headline voting intention numbers. Are they broadly equivalent or are the SNP going to have a, a job to do in, in getting over 50% at the next general election? Um, from polling in December, so towards the end of last year, um, SNP were on around 46%, uh, Labour 22% and Conservatives 19%. So SNP have um, a a pretty good uh, lead over Labour at the moment. And of course, like you said, um, independence, uh, referendum, Scottish independence is going to be one of those major issues. We found that um, around half think there should be a referendum within the next five years. Um, less people are kind of enthusiastic about it this year. So uh, a, a longer time frame for a potential referendum um, would be preferred. Um, what we've seen is that also since the um, Supreme Court ruling, which said that the Scottish government can't hold an independence referendum without the UK government's consent, we've seen that the yes lead um, for independence has slightly opened up. Um, previous polling to that had kind of put them on um, neck and neck or kind of too close to call. Um, but the court ruling has opened up the lead slightly. Yeah, it's going to be a huge political story and a real tricky situation for ministers in Westminster to manage. To Wales now, and we're going to speak, we're going to hear from, rather, Will Haywood from Wales Online. 
Going into 2023, Plaid Cymru are in a really tricky position. Their current leader, Adam Price, took over in 2018 to much fanfare. Plaid's own literature actually described him as the prodigal son of Welsh politics, but things really haven't gone to plan for him since he took over. In the 2021 Senate elections, an election where he said anything less than being First Minister had to be considered a failure, Plaid actually came third behind Welsh Labour, who won a working majority, and the Welsh Conservatives things didn't get better in the council elections in 2022. Plaid actually gained three councils, went from one to four in that election, but the councils they gained were in their heartlands and they had almost complete control of them anyway. It was only one or two extra councillors that pushed them into controlling those councils. Overall, they lost a net of eight seats. Under Adam Price, They've really solidified their appeal in their heartlands. So Gwynedd in the north, Ceredigion, Anglesey and Carmarthenshire. He's very good at speaking to people who already agree with him and has tried to ride the increased wave of support for Welsh independence. However, in areas like the Valleys, areas like Cardiff, areas he needs to win if he's really going to have any real power in Wales, he just hasn't been able to cut through. And there's also personal issues. So there's been recent suspension of one of his MSs. And there is current investigation ongoing into his wider leadership. The reason this is going to present a problem is, as I understand it, he does not come out well when this investigation concludes in March. There's been widespread criticism of his ability to deal with serious allegations within the party. And I can't really see how he survives this. The real thing that's saving him at the moment is a lack of clear alternative. So... It's going to be an interesting 2023 for Plaid. There could be a real realignment in policy where they start to try to appeal outside their traditional heartlands. But at the moment, they really are in the electoral doldrums. And finally, we can hear from Peter McVerry, station manager at our sister station, U105 in Belfast, on the situation at Stormont. The fortunes of the parties in Northern Ireland are woven so tightly together, with much of their future prospects hinging on whether a protocol deal can be reached. Out of the last six years, the Stormont Assembly has only been active for two of those. The most recent absence is, of course, as a result of the DUP decision as part of their protocol opposition. The other four main parties, Sinn Féin, the SDLP, the Ulster Unionists and the Alliance, have urged the DUP to re-enter the devolved Assembly while addressing the acknowledged protocol issues in parallel. Not something, though, DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson has been willing to do so far. As ever in politics here, we've another deadline looming. If an executive isn't restored by the 19th of January, Secretary of State Chris Heaton-Harris is under a legal duty to call an assembly election within 12 weeks. Last time we had this scenario, just before Christmas, emergency legislation was pushed through the House to buy time and the same could happen again. The Secretary of State has invited the parties to meet next Wednesday for roundtable talks. Of course, the ability to reach a deal on the protocol rests not here with the parties, but with Westminster and Brussels. The mood music in the last two months has been positive, but there's been little tangible sign of progress. Observers here also noted that the protocol was conspicuous by its absolute absence from the Prime Minister's pledge and statement on Wednesday. Amongst the parties, the DUP are waiting to see what progress, if any, can be made before making their next move. Sinn Féin, who are entitled to the First Minister's post for the first time ever in Northern Ireland after last May's election, haven't been able to put Michelle O'Neill in that seat and continue to feel the fact is at least partially motivating the DUP's stance. For their part, the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP have seen their seats and votes squeezed in the past few years. That's not likely to change. US President Joe Biden is reportedly keen to visit in April to mark 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement, though he's unlikely to come if devolution hasn't been restored. The parties did manage to set aside their differences yesterday and come together on the steps of Stormont for a silent vigil to remember victims of gender-based violence. 
but it's the ongoing silence inside the chamber that may dominate the political year. That was Peter McVerry, our station manager at our sister station U105 in Belfast. Jerry Scott, Times political reporter, a final thought from you. Obviously, this week we've been focusing on Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, their New Year relaunches, the battle of ideas between Labour and the Conservative Party. But Britain is a, a country that runs not just on two party lines. Each devolved administration has its own difficult political uh, debates and its own individual politics. Um, the biggest issues that the, the government is going to face in the next year and beyond, you know, public sector strikes, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Scottish independence, will be shaped to a large extent by political contests between smaller parties that will play into into Westminster, isn't it? It's a, it's a much more complicated situation than uh, perhaps we often think. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, we often talk about first-past-the-post and it being a two-party system, which is the case, but there's so many different kind of levers and balancing acts that go on around the country. I think the challenge for both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer to an extent as well as we head towards that next general election, um, probably in 2024, is going to be not using the fact that there's a kind of crisis, whether it's the cost of living crisis or public services, to look inwards at Westminster and have an England only and southern England only focus, but be able to draw on kind of the experience from um, around the regions and the nations and make sure you're kind of taking the temperature from from all corners of the of the United Kingdom. It's um it's gonna be a challenge, but that is the challenge that they'll face. That was our big thing on whether minor parties in British politics can finally break through. You heard from Tanya Abraham, YouGov pollster, Jerry Scott, Times political reporter, and Zach Polanski, the deputy leader of the Green Party of England and Wales. Well, that's all we've got time for this week, I'm afraid. Thanks for listening to me this week. Remember, Matt's back on Monday. But in the meantime, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.